The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin, whether it's a mental attitude sin or an overt sin, whenever we sin, we break fellowship with God. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, and in order to advance and grow in the spiritual life, we have to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces growth in our lives. He's the one who helps us to understand His Word, and it is through the Spirit of God and the Word of God that we advance and grow to spiritual maturity. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. It is your word that helps us to understand that our spiritual condition at birth is that of spiritual death, that at birth there is nothing in us that is favorable to you and that we are, in fact, unrighteous. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins, and that our only hope is that someone else will pay the penalty that sin demands. And our hope was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who paid that penalty. He died on the cross as a substitute for us. He did everything necessary for our salvation and went beyond that in providing for us at salvation everything we need to live the spiritual life. We now have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the Spirit of God who dwells within us, who enables us to understand His Word. And now, Father, since we have Your Word, pray that You would help us to understand these things as we Study then this morning that we might be challenged to abide in Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in light, that we might advance to spiritual maturity for your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of introduction, I want you to open your Bibles to a familiar verse, one I just quoted. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. fact, as a matter of fact, I want you to stick your bulletin or something in there and hold your place in Ephesians 2, and we're going to turn back to John chapter 3. As you can tell, we're going to hit some key scriptures this morning because I want to address a doctrine that has been misunderstood and distorted in recent times. This, of course, to, for those of you who've been around a little while and understand some of the issues related to 
what is called the free grace versus lordship salvation doctrine. This is one of the issues that must be addressed. John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a ruler of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus. This is a passage we've discussed in detail and is familiar to most of you, so I'll just hit the high points by way of introduction. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, not because he was cloaking his activities, but because he was a busy man. He is a ruler of the Jews, and by extra-biblical record in terms of the rabbinical tradition, Nicodemus was one of the primary teachers and instructors of the Old Testament in Israel at this particular time. If anyone had any question whatsoever about the meaning of the Old Testament, the man to go to was Nicodemus. Yet Nicodemus himself is in a state of spiritual darkness and spiritual confusion, and he came to Jesus at night. It is significant that it's at night because he is, as I stated, in darkness. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's obviously impressed by Jesus' miracles. Now, Jesus, rather than addressing the issue of his derivation or the issue of his miracles, cuts to the chase in verse 3 and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now there Jesus cuts right to the core issue in salvation that there is a problem with man that he must be born again. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5 we read, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let me diagram this in a particular way on the overhead because I want to address a particularly uh, popular problem today, and we need to back up and understand what regeneration is. At the instant when Adam was created, he had a physical body. That physical body had within it two immaterial aspects. One we call the soul, which is made up of the mentality. Well, it's made up of self-consciousness. Adam knew who he was. It's made up of mentality, the ability to think and reason. It was comprised of volition, the ability to make choices. He he had self-determination, and he had a conscience, which is a sense of moral oughtness, uh, we could identify this as I, I am, self-consciousness, mentality, I think, volition, I will, and consciousness, I ought. That is the image of God, which we will discuss in more detail on Wednesday night in our study of the doctrines of salvation. All of this is comprised of the soul, and then there was a what we call a human spirit, and that is that immaterial aspect or dimension of man and his creation that enabled the soul, his self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience, to have a relationship with God, to understand God, and to have fellowship with God. God warned Adam and the woman in the garden, though, that in the instant you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. Now, they did not die physically, but something happened. They died spiritually. They lost that dimension of their soul, of their, uh, of their um, immaterial being that allowed their soul to have a relationship with God to understand divine truth. That's why, as we have studied many times, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul said, the natural man, the soulish man, literally in the Greek, the psuchikos man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, i.e. a human spirit. Jude 19 says that it's the unbeliever who is sukikos, soulish, that does not have a spirit. So we're missing something at the point of physical birth, and that is a, a spirit. Now, in order to be saved, I'm going to put saved down here at, on the right-hand side of the screen because this is the final product, and I'm going to put a one there because we're talking about phase one salvation, that is, The Bible uses the word saved, as we studied this past Wednesday night, in three ways. 
We are saved in the past at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. That delivers us from the penalty of sin so that we do not spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's what John 3.18 is talking about when when it states that uh, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. We have phase one salvation because we believe in Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. But in Titus 3.5, we see that there is a breakdown of this concept of being saved, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves, saved us, that's the end result, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, I take it that this is, in the Greek, a a synonymous repetition that the regeneration is, the washing of regeneration is the renewal by the Holy Spirit, that it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. So regeneration precedes full salvation. In other words, there are logical steps that precede salvation. Now, theologians love Latin, and this is called, in theology speak, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. It doesn't have to do with the process, but it has to do in time, but the logical order. And we can say that what happens first is that perfect righteousness is imputed to the believer. At the instant that that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, at that same instant and simultaneously, God declares that individual to be justified. He is declared to be just not because he is personally righteous or moral, but because he has received the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. We've received that imputed righteousness. And God the Father looks at us not in terms of our own morality or lack of righteousness, but in terms of Christ's perfect righteousness. So first there's the imputation of righteousness. Then there's justification by faith alone. Then we have, uh, at that instant, we have uh, regeneration. There's other doctrines that we can slip in there, but at that instant we are regenerated, we receive a new human spirit, and we are then spiritually alive. That's the process. Now what has happened is that there are teachers that have come along who are teaching that regeneration comes before faith. That regeneration comes before faith. And there are two passages that they base that on. That's part of uh, hyper-Calvinism, which we discussed on Wednesday night. And we want to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about this? Now, let's turn to that first passage I mentioned, which is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's get the context. In 2.1, Paul states, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a reminder to the Ephesians that they were born spiritually dead. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean uh, anything other than they were uh, in still positionally in, in sin after salvation were positionally in Christ. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, I want you to notice this. We're going to get into a little technical grammar here, and I'm just going to draw some connections. So if you want to circle a word and draw a little arrow to which it refers, you can do that. The in which refers to sins. So verse 2 is a description of sins, of the word sins. And it concludes with the fact that you, uh, that this is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom? Who does the whom refer to? The sons of disobedience. So you see, verse 2 explains the last word in verse 1. Verse 3 explains the last phrase in verse 2, the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, that is the sin nature, fulfilling the desires of the sin nature, 
and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, your English Bible may end that sentence with a period, but trust me, the Greek does not. This is one of those wonderful sentences that the Apostle Paul constructs by piling clause upon clause and drives you nuts if you try to diagram it in the original so that you can catch the main thrust of his of his thought. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See, the subject here is God. That is, if you were going to diagram this for a, an English class, the real, the, the grammatical subject of the first seven verses, which comprises one sentence, the grammatical subject is God in verse 4. It's not back at verse 1. Verse 1 is uh, dependent upon the explanation of what happens in verse 4. He really piles up all these clauses at the beginning to give you a little background before he hits the main idea. And the main idea is God, and then he has a relative clause following God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That is a relative clause describing God. So he's rich in mercy, and then we're told that because of his love with which he loved us, that again is a secondary or subordinate causal clause. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he reminds you of the main idea back in verse 1, made us alive together. Now there are three key verbs in verses 5 and 6. And these are the verbs. God is the subject, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places. They're all together verbs. So God made us alive together, raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the verb. It's a threefold compound verb for what God does for us at salvation. And then we have a purpose clause for that given in verse 7, that in the ages to come, excuse me, yeah, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So verse 7 describes the ultimate long-range purpose of our salvation. But I want you to notice something at the end of verse 5. The end of verse 5, following the first of the three compound verbs, we have the sentence by grace, the parenthetical thought, by grace you have been saved. See, God made us alive together with Christ, and then he says, by grace you have been saved. That is the main thought of this whole section from verse 1 to verse 9 is encapsulated in this independent parenthetical clause that it's by grace you have been saved. Grace means it's a free gift. It's not due to anything that we do. When somebody gives us a gift and it's our birthday, it's we did something. We we had a birthday. At Christmas, there's there's a reason for it. But when somebody just comes along and gives you a present for no reason at all, that's grace. Something good happens for no reason at all, not because you are a good person, not because of something you've done. That's grace. It has nothing to do with you. It hap- It's solely because of the goodness, kindness, and character of the person who does the giving. That is grace. Grace has no strings attached. Grace does not say it's yours if you do this. For example, if I were to give you the title deed for a car and say, this car is yours as long as you take care of it. That was the condition I think I had when I was uh, 17 years old and received a car for graduation present when I was uh, graduated from high school. Trust me, it wasn't much of a car. It was a new car, but it didn't have air conditioning. And in Texas, that means you're going to suffer. You know, and it had an AM radio in it, and that was it. So we were suffering. But it was a free gift, and it was mine, and it's long as I took care of it. Now, God says it's ours whether or not we take care of it. You see, later on, I was given a vehicle, and it was mine. My name was on the title deed. And whether I took care of it or not, it was still mine. See, that's the way salvation is. It's a free gift, no strings attached. If I don't take care of it, it's still mine. It just doesn't do me any good. That's the issue with grace. So Paul is pointing out the fact that it's by grace you have been saved. Now, he's going to pick up that idea 
in verse 8. That's why it's important to go through all this grammatical study, which I've skipped, basically skipped over and just given you the result of, because I want to really get into our core passage in 1 John 5. The main subject, let's, let me review this. You've got to get this in your head. The main subject of the lengthy sentence in the original Greek is God in verse 4. There's a threefold compound verb being made alive together, raised together, and seated together. There is an independent, unrelated, grammatically unrelated clause that applies to the being made together, alive together, the, the, the action of God, and that is by grace, and it's summarized by faith. That idea, by grace you have been saved, is then picked up and expanded. It's sort of like an overlap, the way Paul is developing his thoughts here. You know, he he starts off with, you were dead in your trespasses in verse 1. He comes back and reminds you, picks that idea up again down in verse Verse at the beginning of verse 5 to, to make sure you haven't forgotten that point. And then he's going to add the idea that you were dead in trespasses, but it's by grace you have been saved. And then he's going to pick that idea up again in verse 8. And he, there he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And this is the issue. In verse 9, or excuse me, in verse 8, Well, we're going to have to struggle a little bit because I've completely run out of paper here, and I'm going to need a lot more of it, so we're in trouble. Um, By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is a feminine noun in the Greek. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that... That is a demonstrative singular pronoun that is in the neuter gender. Now, in Greek, a little background, Greek, like many inflected languages, this is what makes a language inflected, you have your nouns are classified according to masculine, feminine, and neuter. It has nothing to do with sex. You know, in English you say, you know, most nouns have a gender, but it's related to some perceived sex of the object. But in other in, or in inflected languages, uh, there's no necessary uh, relationship to sex. So gender doesn't have anything to do with sex. And um, in the old days when people understood how language was used, they didn't use gender and sex as synonyms. The news media and the feminists have destroyed that for us because they have, uh, the feminist agenda was to destroy any sexual connotation or distinctions, so they opted for gender as a synonym for sex because they couldn't read a dictionary. See, words have gender, people have sex, and they never quite figured that out. So, the that here is a neuter pronoun. And in rules of grammar, a pronoun must always agree with its antecedent, that is, the word that it refers to, in case, number, and gender. So a neuter gender pronoun cannot refer to a feminine gender noun. can't happen grammatically. The problem is that you will run into many people teaching today, popular teachers, nationally known teachers on the radio, who say that the that refers to faith, and they come up with abstruse reasons that have nothing to do with Greek grammar in order to demonstrate that. And their conclusion is that the faith is the gift. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that is, the faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And according to that view, faith is a gift of God, and the kind of faith that is exercised at salvation is a special kind of faith. It is, I have to have the right tone of piousness, it is saving faith. See, what they do then is they are placing the significance on the kind of faith exercised at salvation and not the quality I mean, not the object of faith. It is the object of your faith that makes it salvific. 
The reason you're saved is not because you have a special kind of faith, but because your faith is directed to the proper object of faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The word that is used for faith, for salvation throughout the scriptures, is the same word that is used for the everyday use of faith. You get up in the morning and you're running a little late, but you believe your car will start when you get there, that uh, you're not going to have any trouble. You believe that when you get to work, that it's still going to be there and you're still going to have a job. You believe that when you write a check, that there's enough money in your bank account to cover the check. Those are all functions of faith. You may be right or you may be wrong in what you believe, but you believe it. It is not a special quality of faith that saves you. It is a faith directed toward the proper object, which is the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the construction of verse verse 8, we have the statement, For by grace you have been saved, which was picked up from verse 5, through faith. The through faith is a completely new idea that is not germane to the subject of the verse. The subject of the verse is, by grace you have been saved. That's what he's talking about, going all the way back to verse 5, and what becomes clear in the grammatical structure of the first seven verses. So, by grace you have been saved, through, and that not of yourselves. It is the grace salvation that is not of yourselves. It is the grace salvation that is a free gift of God. So when we go back and we look at our... Excuse me a minute while I try to get this working again. We go back to the order of salvation as mentioned in 3.5. What we learn from... I mean, from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is that this end result of our salvation is, is by grace. That Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 does not teach that faith precedes regeneration. Ah, but if you're sharp and you're watching this, you realize that regeneration precedes the final result of salvation. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is only, can only be used to talk about being saved, because that's what's used in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved, that salvation would precede faith. So some smart person would come along and say, well, regeneration precedes faith. So first you're regenerated, then you have faith, and then you can be said to be saved. Somebody really say that? Yes, they do. And what do they base that on? They base that on 1 John 5, verse 1. So let's turn to our passage in 1 John 5, 1 and see how this is, how this is done. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Now, we ought not lose the context. John is still talking about the abiding Christian life and avoiding shame and embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, in the structure of 1 John, the main body of the epistle began in 1 John 2.28, where John said, And now, little children, abide in him. That's the command. Everything from chapter 2, verse 29, down through 5, 3, the first half of 5, 3, is the main core, the main body of this epistle. And that all revolves around the theme of describing what it looks like to be abiding in him so that you can abide in him and have confidence when he appears. That's the thrust. Abide in him that when he appears, that is, at the rapture, when every believer is absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, those who are dead or receive their resurrection bodies, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. Then when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That is, no shame at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for church-age believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 and following. Now, that's the thrust. 
the one of the major themes that John has introduced in chapter 3 and 4 is that the believer is to to abide in Christ or must abide in Christ in order to come to a position of knowing God. Knowing God is not another phrase for salvation. You know, we use it that way. There's a lot of poor verbiage in our everyday evangelical um, jargon. We say, brother, do you know Jesus? And what people say, mean by that is, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? But the Bible doesn't use knowing Jesus as a synonym for salvation. For example, as we have studied in John chapter 14, when Jesus was talking to one of his disciples, Philip, who was already saved at that point, he said, Philip, if you had known me. So Philip is saved, but he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't, hasn't advanced very far in his understanding of who Jesus Christ is. See, and what he, what, who he is and what he has provided for him. You see, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to know a whole lot at the point of salvation. All we have to know is Jesus died for us, and that by believing in him, we're going to have eternal life. And we might even be able to boil it down a little less than that. We have to just basically understand that Jesus is the solution to our problem, and he's the one who's going to going to save us. And if we believe that and trust him alone, then we're going to be be saved. But we don't know a whole lot about him at that point. I remember when I was six years old, and my parents... Uh, took me home from church one Sunday, and they sat me down after lunch, and they explained to me that, that everybody's born a sinner, and that means they've all disobeyed God, and they're all going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. But if we, uh, but Jesus died on the cross as a uh, substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty for us, so if we don't want to go to the lake of fire, all we have to do is accept salvation from Jesus and believe on him and we'll be saved. And I did, and at that time I didn't understand anything about the hypostatic union. I couldn't say the word. I didn't understand anything about uh, kenosis. I didn't understand anything about the impeccability of Jesus Christ. I didn't understand uh, anything about the Trinity all I knew is that Jesus died for me, and by trusting him, I could avoid eternal punishment. You don't have to be a theological expert to, to become saved. But after you're saved, then you come to study the Bible, and you learn, and you develop, and you begin to understand all that Christ did for you. You understand that the problem was that with the character of God, that God was perfect righteousness, and justice and could not have fellowship with mankind unless the sin problem was dealt with. And so Jesus Christ died on the cross to satisfy the Father's righteous demand and a righteous sacrifice could pay the penalty for sin. And so God's character was satisfied or propitiated. And that's the doctrine of propitiation. We understand that we were born in slavery to the sin nature, and Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He redeemed us, so we understand the doctrine of redemption. Uh, we understand that the, the debt of sin was paid for, and that is the doctrine of expiation. We understand that because the barrier of sin is no longer an issue, and that we now, having been justified, have peace with God, we know that we are reconciled to him, and that's the doctrine of reconciliation. And so as we come to understand all of these dimensions to salvation, we begin to appreciate who God is more and more, and we begin to fall in love with him. So knowledge comes only after we're saved and after there's a certain level of spiritual growth and understanding the scriptures. And then as we come to know him, we come to love him. That's the, the process. And so John indicates in 1 John 3 and 4, as we have studied, is that we have to come to know God and to love him, which means we have to understand his word, know his word, and apply his word. We don't really love God, and we don't love one another, and we have to reach that stage of spiritual maturity, otherwise there's going to be some embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the background. Now, in chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, he is concluding... What he began in verse 17, I think I misspoke last time and stated that at the end of chapter 4 we were wrapping it, but the section goes to the first part of, chap- of verse 3 in chapter 5. He has stated in chapter 4, verse 17, love has been matured among us in this, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. See, that's why we have to reach maturity is so we can have confidence at that day of judgment. 
because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love. That is a fear of judgment, fear of condemnation at the judgment seat of Christ, not a loss of salvation, but a loss of rewards. But perfect love, that is mature love, if you reach this stage of maturity, then it casts out fear because fear involves uh, torment or punishment, but he who fears has not been brought to completion in love. We love him because he first loved us. So now he's going to connect the fact that how do we know we really love God? And he's going to show that 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 is related to loving one another in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he says he can't love God. And now he's going to expand on that principle in these first two and a half verses. The chapter break really should come halfway through verse 3 and not where it does. That breaks up the flow of thought. But he's going to make a point about being a member of the family of God and that being a member of the family of God means that we love other members of the family of God because it is God who has given birth or regenerated all of us. But he begins with the statement that sounds a little awkward in the English and in the Greek is open to misinterpretation. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now the issue here is the Greek verbal construction. He begins with a present active indicative. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And the word there for born, excuse me, uses a, whoever believes is a present participle. The main verb is is born. Okay, let me put this up here. Is born. Notice how it's translated into English as a present tense. In Greek, it is a perfect passive indicative. Perfect means it refers to a an action that has been completed in the past. Now, whenever you have a perfect tense, it emphasizes either the completion of the action, which is called an extensive perfect, or it is emphasizing the present results of that completed past action. That's called an intensive perfect. This is emphasizing the present consequences of the of regeneration. You were born again in the past. At some point before now, you put your faith alone in Christ alone, and at that instant you were regenerated. And so he's emphasizing the present reality of a past action, so it's translated into English as a present tense, but in actuality it is a perfect tense in the in the Greek. That perfect tense is preceded in the context by a present participle. Now here's where things get a little complicated. Participles don't have time per se. Participles are all related to the time aspect in the main verb. So an aorist participle, which is a past tense form, precedes the action of the verb. A present tense goes along with the same time as the action of the verb, and a future tense would come after the action of the verb. Well, this is a present participle, so that indicates that believing would be viewed as cotemporaneous with being born again. That doesn't really tell us anything. The problem is that you get a number of people who come along and look at this perfect tense, and they want to say, well, that's past action. What that means is you're born first. I mean, you're, you have, um, yeah, you're born first, you're regenerated first, and then you believe afterwards. And they interpret this verse to relate to phase one salvation because of the phrase, Jesus, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we have to take this apart, pretty basic. It gets a little complicated, so I want to make sure you can follow me. This grammar is not uncommon in 1 John. A perfect tense main verb preceded by a present tense participle. What we have to do is look at the other examples of this in the Greek to see exactly how Paul, I mean, excuse, excuse me, see exactly how John uses them. So, 
Let's look at the examples. First John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness, present participle, is born, perfect tense verb, is born of him. So First John 2.29 indicates that the one who practices righteousness has already been born of him. So practicing righteousness then comes after you're born. First John 3, 9, no one who is born, perfect tense, of God practices sin. Because, and we saw there that that doesn't mean you don't sin. It has to do with the, with abiding. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because, what, he is born of God. So there you don't have a present tense. You just have that perfect perfect tense main verb there that he has already been born of God. So a consequence of being born of God is that you cannot sin. First John 4, 7 states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Now here again we have that same construction. Everyone who loves, present participle, is born, already born of God. So there it seems like loving is a consequence of being born. First John 5, 1 now. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Well, if we look at those other examples, then, then that seems to indicate that believing that Jesus is the Christ is a consequence of being born of God. Sounds like faith comes uh, after regeneration. First John 5, 4 has the same construction. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So, because you're born of God, a consequence of that is overcoming the world. And then in verse 18 of this chapter, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So sinning would be something that is a con- that are not sinning would be a consequence of being born of God. So those are the verses where you have this perfect tense of ganao, the verb for regeneration. The key verses are 1 John 2:29. 1 John 4, 7, and 1 John 5, 1. Looking at them again, we see the phrase, the one who practices righteousness, present active participle, is born of him. So the practicing righteousness here looks like it's a consequence of being born. 1 John 4, 7, whoever loves is born of God. Loving is a consequence of being born. 1 John 5.1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So believing seems to be the result of being born. Well, say, Pastor, that looks like you're wrong there, that regeneration does precede faith. Well, let's engage in a few little observations here before we get carried away. First of all, in 1 John 2.29, the phrase, who practices righteousness, as we saw when we translated that, isn't the Greek verb proso, meaning practice, but the Greek verb poieo, which means to do. Whoever does righteousness is born of him. Second observation, I think this is crucial. All of these statements, all three of these statements, 1 John 2.29, 1 John 4.7, and 1 John 5.1, have to be understood in the same way. That means that if 1 John 2.29 is talking about what happens after salvation, and we're talking about the Christian life, then 1 John 4.7 has to be talking about Christian life truth, and 1 John 5.1 has to be talking about Christian life truth. In other words, we're not talking about what happens at salvation, but we're talking about what the believer looks like after salvation. That We have to treat them the same because they're they're consistent. Now, let me remind you, at this point, we have to remember that in 228, the main body of the epistle began, and the theme was the command to abide in Christ. So he's addressing believers with the command to abide in Christ so they won't experience shame at the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's First John 228. Now, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. This means that contextually, 
from 1 John 2.28 to 1 John 5.3a, John is not talking about getting saved. He's not addressing Christian life truth. He's, a, I mean, excuse me, he's not addressing salvation. He's addressing Christian life truth. He is addressing the subject of what the abiding life looks like. He's not addressing the question of how you get saved. So it would not be consistent for him to suddenly, in the midst of this whole section that's dealing with what the abiding life looks like, to suddenly introduce something about phase one salvation or justification salvation. But you say, well, Pastor, the the verse says whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Isn't that the basic sense of the gospel according to John? Let's go back and look at John 20, 30, and 31. At the end of his gospel, John said, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, these signs, have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is the gospel. These are written that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Christos, in the Greek means Messiah. It's a translation of the, or it's the Greek form of the uh, Hebrew Mashiach for uh, the Anointed One, and that believing Jesus is the Messiah, that is the key to salvation. That's correct. This is exactly what John says is necessary in order to enter into Phase One salvation. Now remember, I'm going to squeeze this into the last remaining section of the scroll. Phase one is at the cross. The issue there is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At that instant that you put faith alone in Christ alone, you're saved. Then the word saved also deals with the fact that at phase two, we're being saved from the power of sin in the Christian life. Phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. At phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature, but as we grow, we are to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. It's not until phase three, when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, that we are finally saved from the presence of the sin nature, and that is our uh, when we have a glorified body and we no longer have a struggle with sin. So my point is that if 1 John 2.28 to 1 John 5.3 is dealing with, this, with phase 2 spiritual life truth, then making 5.1 fit salvation is inconsistent. Secondly, if salvation phase 1 is the issue, if he is talking about salvation, then what John is saying is that all who have been regenerated believe that Jesus is the Messiah. However, you can't make that kind of statement in the other verses. Remember, if John is, if this is salvation, then what John is not saying is not simply whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, but everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, or all who believe, have been regenerated. But, if you try to make this work with the other verses, for example, in 1 John 4, 7, then that would mean that everyone who is regenerated loves God. If everyone who is regenerated believes Jesus is the Messiah in 1 John 5, 1, then everyone who is regenerated in 1 John 4, 7 would have to love. But the problem is that not everyone loves. That's his whole point in the whole of chapter 4. Not everyone loves. So you you can't reverse the logic of the of the verse and have it consistent with the other other verses. First of all, we have to remember that in First John two eleven to twelve, the believer walking in darkness hates his brother. Also in chapter three verse ten and chapter three fifteen, the believer walking in darkness hates his brother. So obviously you can't have everyone born of God, loving. What he is saying is being born of God is a prerequisite to being able to love. But he's not saying that every 
one who is born again is also going to love. There are some who are born again who won't love. Now, 1 John 2, 3, and 4 states, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The point of this verse is that knowing God is evidenced by keeping his commandments. So the point of 1 John 2, excuse me, the first point of 1 John 4, 7 is that loving comes on, loving one another and loving God only comes as a result of spiritual growth. It is an evidence of the abiding believer. Now, back to five one. In other words, what this, this these people are trying to say is the reality B being born again is necessary to do A, that is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But if, is it possible that what John is saying in 5.1 is exactly what he's been saying in 2.29 and 4.7? That is, the believer who is manifesting his family birth does righteousness. The believer who is manifesting his family birth loves his brother, and the believer who is manifesting his family birth continues to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That the believer who is, on the other hand, not manifesting his family birth, sins. The believer who is not manifesting his family birth, the fact that he's a member of the royal family of God, hates his brother. And the believer who is not abiding, not walking in, in, in the light, rejects Jesus as the Messiah. This is exactly John's point here, because as he has already stated, part of the problem with the false teachers that he's dealing with is that they have started teaching that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, that he didn't come in the flesh, because they were docetists. They were teaching that Jesus really didn't appear in the flesh. In 1 John 4, 2, the spirit of error mentioned there is teaching that Jesus was not the Messiah. And that's related back to 1 John 2.20, where it says that there were those of us, that is, those of the apostles and the apostolic crowd, that went out from us but were really not of us. And John asserts that these false teachers, once associated with the apostles, were using that former association to give their ministry credibility. This doesn't mean that they weren't saved. It just means that they got into false doctrine after they were saved, and because they're into false doctrine, they're no longer in fellowship, they're no longer abiding, and they will experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, what John is saying here is not phase one salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about... He's looking at the person born of God in each of these verses, in 2.29 and 4.7 and in 5.1, as a the person who is in the family of God and who is continuing to abide. He's assuming this is a growing believer. In those other two verses, he says the person who is born of God doesn't sin. He's assuming the person who is born of God and abiding doesn't sin. See, so he's looking at the person as born who is manifesting his new birth. Now, I know I'm losing some. Don't worry. We're going to cover this about five more times in that class on Wednesday night on regeneration. What John is basically saying here is in verse 1 is the same thing he said everywhere else, and that is there are certain things that are going to characterize a person who is manifesting their position in the family of God, and that is they're going to love their brother. They're not going to sin. And they're going to continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But if you're a disobedient believer in reversionism, you're living in carnality, you're walking according to the flesh, and you're not paying attention to the truth of Scripture, then you're going to hate your brother. You're not going to practice righteousness. And guess what? You're going to get caught up in false doctrine, and you may even reject the deity of Christ and that he's the Messiah. 
That makes sense when you look down to verse 13, where John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. See, the point is, there were those who weren't continuing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And as a result of that, John is addressing that as one evidence of their carnality. Now, all of that is just to handle that one issue, which is, the issue of does regeneration precede faith? No, it doesn't. Faith comes first, then regeneration. Neither Ephesians 2 nor 1 John 5 can support the pernicious doctrine that regeneration precedes faith. See, if regeneration precedes faith, then your volition is not involved at all in your salvation. See, that goes along with the hyper-Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election that God just chooses you and then he's going to regenerate you and then he's going to save you and you don't have anything to do with it at all. It all happens because God made the decision and your will isn't involved at any point in the process. So let's not get caught up in that trap. Well, the concept of regeneration preceding faith isn't really in John's mind at all, but we had to address it because that's the error that we face in our modern time. What John is saying is that whoever is manifesting their position in the family of God is going to love one another. And this is what he goes on to emphasize in the second half of the verse. He says, everyone and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. He's still dealing with the issue of what it means and how it is evidence that we love God. In verse 20, he used the hypothetical situation. If someone says they love God and hates their brother, that is, another Christian, they're a liar. For he is, he does not love his brother, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And then now in, in verse 1, he is saying, whoever loves the Father, also loves the child born of him. See, we're all saved by grace. Some of you are more obnoxious in time than others of you, and so it's hard for some of us to love some of you. Face it. Now, I don't see anyone here this morning that's all that difficult to love, but we know that there are times when we're all difficult to love and that there are other Christians that we have met along the way who are difficult to generate any kind feelings about. They're out of fellowship, they're obnoxious, they have displeasing personalities, whatever it might be. It's just difficult for us to love them. That's because we always want to think of love in terms of some sort of emotional connotation, some sense of feeling. You can't generate or force positive feelings towards somebody who is obnoxious. But that's not what God's talking about. God is saying whether they're obnoxious or not, we're to love them. Because love in the scriptures, as I have stated again and again, is not emotion. Love has to do with wanting and choosing, desiring the very best for the object of love. The concept of best, if I want the best for you, then I have to have some doctrine in my soul because best is a value judgment. Now, if I'm carnal and I'm operating on a non-biblical scale of values, then best is one thing. But if I'm operating on the Word of God and I know the truth, then I can make an objective decision about what is best for somebody else. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to function as God, but I can I can treat them in objectivity. But I can't treat them that way unless, first of all, the Word of God has permeated my soul, and I know the Word of God and understand the commandments of God. So love is based on knowledge in the Scriptures. It's not based on feeling or emotion. It's based on accurately understanding who people are and what they are, and it's based not on who I am and my character. It's based on the character of Christ. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us, and that love is based on his perfect righteousness and justice. So we have to understand and know who God is before we can love other people, and that's why John draws this connection. That loving God is manifested by loving one another, and loving, how do you know if you love God? Well, because you keep His commandments. And that's exactly what He is saying here. That the person who is regenerate and is abiding loves the Father and will also love the child born of Him, no matter how obnoxious they are. 
Notice that is love that is desiring the best for them. It's an absence of mental attitude sin plus a positive desire to make sure they have uh, doctrine, number one, and that if there are physical needs, as he stated earlier in chapter 3, that we can provide, we're going to provide them. Now in verse 2 he states, By this we know that we love the children of God. How do you know if you love the children of God? Is this is there an emotional criterion? Is it because you look across the room and you have warm, fuzzy feelings towards those pers- those people? No, because if that's true, then we all know that there are some of us who are no- never going to make it because there are some Christians we just don't love, we don't like, we don't enjoy them. But we have an objective standard in the Scriptures. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. How do we know we love God? Because we do what He says to do. So we're ruled by an external system of integrity, the character of God. And we live according to that external system of integrity, which is God's plan for our life. And in order to live according to that plan, we have to know it. In order to know it, you have to make the knowledge of God and His Word the highest priority in your life. So John follows a rigorous stair step of logic here, and he concludes it in verse 3. For this is the love of God. Now that is an, what's called a uh, objective genitive, a love for God, that we keep his commandments. How do you know if you love God? You keep his commandments. How do you know his commandments? Because you've made it a priority. So here's the stair step of John's logic. The person who loves God also loves the child of God that he has begotten, that is born again. Second, the person who loves the child of God loves God and keeps his commandments. Love for God consists in keeping his commandments. Therefore, love for God consists in making the knowledge of his commandments and the application of those commandments the highest priority in life. It's not a matter of generating certain feelings for people. We may not like that person, and yet still, because they need the coat off our back, we'll give them the coat off our back. They have a flat tire, we'll stop and we'll help them change the tire, not because we like them, not because we want to take them home and give them fried chicken on Sunday for dinner, but because they are a regenerate child of God, a member of the royal family of God, and if God loves them unconditionally, it is nothing more than arrogance for us to do anything less. And to get to that point requires a tremendous amount of spiritual growth. That's why the issue in all of this is maturity. Loving God and loving one another only happens when you've reached a level of spiritual adulthood. It doesn't happen when you're a spiritual child. You don't know enough and you don't understand the plan of God well enough and you don't know God well enough. It comes only with growth. And only by reaching spiritual adulthood can we be sure that we are going to make it at the judgment seat of Christ, not lose rewards, and not embarrass ourselves and the plan of God. It doesn't have anything to do with gaining salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with gaining the approbation of God so that we'll spend eternity in heaven. It has everything to do with glorifying Him so that we're demonstrating the opposite characteristics of Satan and Satan's fall. Satan said the creature can exalt himself, be absorbed with himself, and do it his own way, and he can be successful. And God is demonstrating that the only way the creature, God is demonstrating through the church-age believer, that the only way the creature can have real success in life and in eternity is to be completely oriented to God's plan and to love God and to manifest just the opposite characteristics of Satan, not Arrogance, but humility. Not hatred. Remember, hatred equals murder, and Satan is the father of murder and the father of lies, but true, genuine love. It can't happen, and it won't happen because we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and force ourselves to do it. It is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 states, that that only happens as we walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, take in the Word, then the Spirit of God produces that over time in our life, but it doesn't happen on our own. That works. We are not matured, Paul says in Galatians 3, by 
works of the flesh. We are matured by the Spirit of God in the same way that we are saved, that is, by the Spirit of God. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We put our faith and trust in Him. Anybody can do it. Just as anybody can drink water, anybody can chew food, we simply accept it, we trust it, and it is Christ who did all the work. It is the object of faith that saves us. It is not God who saves us, and then we wake up to that reality later on. That is the path to a reverse form of works. That is introducing works in the back door. Works are not the basis of salvation or the basis of assurance of salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to once again realize the extent of your grace, that you provided everything for us, everything in salvation and everything for the spiritual life. Father, we pray now that as we conclude this study and the center part of First John that deals with love, that, that we might have a greater appreciation of what it means to love one another, that it is grounded in loving you, that is grounded in knowing you, and that is the result of making a study of your word the highest priority in our life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God. It's not a matter of moral reformation, not a matter of church attendance or church involvement. It is simply a matter of putting your faith alone in Christ alone. He did all the work. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. We simply accept that as a free gift. The instant you believe Christ died on the cross for you, God the Father knows that, and at that instant, he saves you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we might have a greater appreciation of the dynamics of what you have done in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.